electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Meg Terrell, CNBC's senior health and science reporter. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, an interview with Dr. Mark Feinberg. He's the president and CEO of IAVI, the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative, a nonprofit scientific research organization focused on urgent, unmet global health challenges like HIV, tuberculosis, and now COVID-19. Just this week, IAVI announced a collaboration with Merck, the pharmaceutical giant, to develop a vaccine against the novel coronavirus based on the same technology as Merck's Ebola Zaire vaccine, or Vibo. Dr. Feinberg actually worked at Merck when the company licensed that vaccine back in 2014, which gives him a unique perspective on this vaccine technology and how it's now being leveraged to fight COVID-19. We started the interview talking about the rapid development of that Ebola vaccine six years ago. I'm happy to reflect on that story because I, I think it's an interesting and important one, and I think there are a number of ways that it's relevant to the issues we're facing today. Um, I think many of your viewers will recall that in the West African Ebola outbreak in 2014 to 2016, that was by far the largest Ebola outbreak that had ever been seen, far larger than people imagined we would ever see. But it not only spread widely throughout West Africa, including Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, it also, as you know, traveled to the U.S. and Europe and raised lots of concerns. And in the, you know, as epidemic progressed through 2014, there were actually projections there were going to be over a million cases of Ebola, um, which fortunately didn't turn out to be the case. But that was a major concern. And a lot of effort went into trying to expedite vaccine development in a unprecedentedly um, expedited manner, you know, similar to what we're experiencing today, but in fact, you know, even more accelerated today than then. Um, at the time, you know, Merck, along with many other companies, were trying to understand what would be the best way for them to engage. And then beginning in early October of 2014, I started receiving um, outreach from a number of U.S. government officials, as well as officials at the World Health Organization, because of my role as what was then the chief public health and science officer for Merck vaccines. So, a lot of my efforts involved, you know, trying to apply Merck's R&D capabilities and commitment to global access for our products um, as it relates to global health and issues in the developing world. Um, so at the time, as Merck was evaluating how they could make a meaningful contribution, they wanted to do something that would leverage the unique or special capabilities of the company. And one area where they had a longstanding history was in the uh, development and manufacturing of live viral vaccines. And of the candidate vaccines that were be con being considered at that time, the VSV Ebola vaccine um, was one that really didn't have a major pharma partner, but many people thought was in fact the most promising opportunity. And Merck was encouraged um, to get engaged. And as we looked more closely 
at that opportunity, it became very clear that this was a very promising opportunity and one where the company could make meaningful contributions. So in a very short period of time, the company went from those initial outreaches to deciding to um, really get involved in a major way, license the vaccine from New Link Genetics um, and carry on an accelerated vaccine development program. Tell us about that technology. I mean, in, a, in an accessible way to an audience who may not be super familiar with using you know, viruses to deliver vaccines, uh, how does this vaccine work? Yeah, well, it's in some ways, um, you know, different from the traditional live viral vaccines that people receive, like measles or varicella, you know, the chickenpox vaccine, or now the, you know, shingles vaccine, because those are, you know, taking the live virus that, you know, can cause disease, but then taking it and passaging it in a prolonged manner in, in tissue culture, where it becomes adapted to the growth conditions in tissue culture and, and can no longer infect at a high level and cause serious disease in, in people, yet it does induce a protective immune response. Um, the vesicular stomatitis virus or VSV is referred to as a broad class as a viral vector. So you're using another vector, another virus to deliver the target antigen that you want to induce an immune response against. And in this case, the recombinant VSV vector system works by substituting the surface protein of the VSV virus, which is a virus that normally infects, you know, certain kinds of cattle or hoofed animals, um, does not cause disease or serious infections in people. And substituting that surface protein for the surface protein of whatever other virus you're interested in. In that case, it was the Ebola virus. So what's interesting about that is not only do those recombinant viruses produce the um, surface protein you inserted, the Ebola protein, but it also infects the cells that the Ebola virus naturally infects. So it's going viruses and inducing an immune response in a uh, often robust and relevant manner, which is one reason why it's of interest to people and is a very flexible um, platform. So that's, you know, was one you know major reason why we were interested in that. In addition, it had a very strong track record of, you know, preclinical studies where it had been shown to be very efficacious in animal models where a single dose vaccine was 100% protective. And that's what we were hoping to see in people as well. Coming up on the keynote, in 2015, Dr. Feinberg and his team at Merck broke records with the speed with which they developed an Ebola vaccine. Can this team do it again for COVID-19? Stay with us. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome back to the keynote. I'm Meg Terrell. You're listening to my conversation with IAVI President and CEO, Dr. Mark Feinberg. His organization has partnered with Merck to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. 
let's talk about the timelines uh, because you at Merck licensed this vaccine from New Link, which I believe had uh, licensed it from the Canadian government. Um, that was in November 2014. It was in phase one trials at the time. Uh, by July 2015, the vaccine was proven effective in a trial run in Guinea. Um, and then it was more than four years until the FDA approved Ervivo. Uh, you know, I understand it's a very different situation from this pandemic, which unfortunately promises to keep roaring at the same pace almost until we have a vaccine or herd immunity, uh, whereas Ebola does flare up and comes down. So it's different in terms of the urgency. But tell us about that timeline and then. We'll talk about how we can extrapolate yeah. that if we can to COVID-19. You know, prior to that, the timeline for going from a phase one trial to a phase three efficacy trial often can be 10, 15, even 20 years. So the idea of doing it in 10 months would have been something that no one would have imagined or believed would be possible. And, and yet it was. And it was you know possible by you know a very um, accelerated development plan, an amazing set of partners who are very dedicated to this working all around the world, um, as well as, you know, meaningful of, you know, governments to help fund the research, including the U.S. government played a major role, as well as really a very thoughtful and proactive approach of the regulatory authorities, both in the U.S. and, and Europe, and uh, substantial engagement in, in an unprecedented way of organizations like the WHO, the NIH, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention um, in really trying to address an urgent, you know, public health threat um, by, you know, contributing to vaccine development. So a lot of the things that normally would have taken years were happening in, you know, months, if not weeks. And we initiated the program at Merck after, as you indicate correctly, that the phase one, the initial phase one study had already started in mid-October of 2014. Merck got involved in mid-November of 2014. And in a period of time, there were eight phase one clinical trials that were done. Um, we learned a lot about what dose of the vaccine to administer to people. We learned a lot about what the safety parameters were for the vaccine. And at the beginning of February, actually on February 2nd, the first um, phase three study um, started for the vaccine. And um, that, you know, was really going from kind of being engaged in mid-November to having a decision about what the dose would be and the frameworks for the clinical trials that would be done and the data to support the you know phase three efficacy trials happening in a very short period of time was was truly unprecedented. I think you know people will try to match or beat those timelines here to the extent possible. Absolutely, and as we are talking about COVID nineteen, when I saw that Merck was partnering with Iavi and saw your name, I sort of felt like okay, they're getting the team back together. Um, tell us about how this partnership on COVID nineteen came together. Uh, obviously, you left on good terms because Ken Frazier told me multiple times yesterday that you're a superstar. Uh, so how did this partnership on COVID-19 begin? Well, I think Ken Frazier is a superstar um, as well. Um, you know, the when you, you know, one of the issues that I'm sure you've heard a lot about for the current generation of COVID vaccines that are being 
developed. A lot of them are based on very innovative technologies and innovative um, science. And, and I think that's really tremendous. You know, one of the, you know, issues, though, that people will confront as they're developing those vaccines is that, you know, whether it's the nucleic acid vaccines like RNA or DNA or some of the other, you know, vaccines like adenovirus, which I think are all important to consider, there are no licensed vaccines. And by a licensed vaccine, I mean a vaccine that's approved by a stringent regulatory authority like the FDA, where they have a deep understanding of every aspect of those vaccine vectors, um, the delivery, you know, approaches for um, the vaccine um, or the platforms that are used, technologies like the RNA or DNA vaccines. Those are very promising, but they're new. And because there aren't any licensed vaccines, the regulators don't have the experience going all the way from the most basic discovery process all the way through, you know, translation, clinical development, manufacturing, scale-up, deployment, safety, tolerability, and efficacy. And all of those are really key considerations for regulatory authorities, you know, for understandable reasons. What's really valuable, and I think this was very important for Merck, in their considering a vaccine strategy, would they want to support that made sense to them based on their areas of expertise and their experience as well as their track record for getting licensure of that vaccine candidate by the FDA and EMA. They were very attracted to the VSV platform. And you know, there are other reasons to be interested in it. You know, a number of the other you know, vaccines that are being developed are being studied as two-dose regimens where there's a priming immunization, then you come back a month or two later with a booster immunization. And you know that may be necessary to get sufficiently high immune responses with those vaccines. And that if that's what's necessary, that's perfectly fine. But I mean, it would be even better um, to have a vaccine where it was administered in a single dose and could induce immune responses very rapidly. And what we saw in the Ebola experience was very remarkable. And actually, if you had told me that it would be possible to achieve this result, I would have thought you were being overly optimistic. So when the vaccine was actually tested to examine whether it could prevent Ebola infection in the clinical trial in Guinea that you referred to, the vaccine was shown to be highly efficacious, close to 100% efficacious, and it induced uh, protective immune responses within seven to 10 days after administration of a single vaccination. And if you're thinking about dealing with an outbreak like Ebola, that's exactly what you want to do because you want to protect people as soon as possible. And in the regions of the world where those outbreaks occur, the healthcare infrastructure is often very limited. And as you know, in Guinea, it was also suffering from, you know, instability, years of war. And, and when the vaccine was deployed more recently in, in the D Democratic Republic of Congo, you know that there was active violence taking place and we're trying to vaccinate the people at risk of Ebola. So, you know, from a practical point of view, having a one-dose vaccine where you reach people once and can have confidence that you're having a good chance of protecting them from a really terrible disease like Ebola, that's a big advantage. And, you know, given the massive amount of effort that's going to be required to have global availability of a COVID-19 vaccine, as well as simply thinking about the manufacturing scale, 
if you have to deliver just a single dose, that's practically simpler and also much more resource conservative than having to produce and deliver multiple doses of the vaccine. So those are you know, important attributes. And when Merck was thinking about which vaccine approach to take, they said, well, we have experience with VSV. We have experience working with the regulatory authorities on this. It's a single dose vaccine that it induces. And those are ex- the exact same reason why the IAVI scientists who have been working on the VSV vector platform for some time have also prioritized that as an approach that we thought was meritorious to take alongside of all the other candidates that are advancing. Mm-hmm. So I'm telling that long story because it's important to realize when Merck was looking for how they could contribute to the COVID-19 um, you know, effort, they wanted to work with things that they thought would add unique value, which would be a vaccine they were familiar with, um, the regulators were familiar with. It had the opportunity for being a single-dose vaccine. Obviously, we'll have to prove that, and it induced immunity rapidly. And so they reached out to me to ask if I knew anyone who was developing a VSV SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19 vaccine. And I told them, yes, that we, in fact, had already a program and were making significant progress in it. So that immediately led to discussions that um, actually progressed even faster than the Ebola discussions in 2014. Um, and it was really, um, you know, great. So while the program was just, you know, publicly announced yesterday, the work has actually been going on for some time now. Coming up, with more than 100 vaccine programs underway, how many could be viable? Dr. Feinberg says we'll need more than one to meet global demand. Don't go away. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to the keynote. You're listening to Dr. Mark Feinberg, president and CEO of IAVI, a nonprofit research organization working to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. We've mentioned a couple times that the pace at which things are moving here for COVID-19 is even faster than it moved for Ebola. So, you know, I want to ask you the timeline question about vaccine development, because there's so many promises out there um, that we'll have a vaccine by the end of the year somehow or early 2021. Do you think that that is likely from anything you've observed in the field? You know, some of the human trials started back in March. Um, what do you think is likely? Well, it, it's hard to know. I mean, I think people will put into going forward as quickly as possible. And I think the, you know, creativity and insight provided by the scientific effort is just amazing. I mean, things that have been learned in, in days would have taken, you know, a long period of time previously. I think, you know, people in the in the community are communicating in a more, you know, open and transparent way, which is really important. But 
you know, in the Ebola example, you know, as I already had you know, mentioned previously, we already had reason to believe that this vaccine, the Ebola vaccine, had a reasonable chance of working in people because extensive studies have been done previously over the years. The Ebola vaccine that Merck advanced to licensure, the work on that began in 2004 by, you know, scientists at the Public Health Agency of Canada. Um, it just sort of languished because people didn't think we needed an Ebola vaccine or it wasn't clear how you would test an Ebola vaccine. But what was not uncertain is that there was a biological basis to think that the vaccine might induce protective immunity in people. You know, in the case of COVID, what's you know different is that this vaccine was, you know, just recognized, you know, really less than six months ago. And we fire. haven't had that the virus was just you know recognized a little while ago and we haven't had time to do the kind of extensive preclinical the studies you do before you enter clinical trials with this vaccine so we don't really you know there have been some studies recently published of you know experimental studies in animals showing that some of the candidate vaccines seem to be beneficial and that's really important but we don't really know how that's going to translate into people so in many ways, the most meaningful answer, as it always is, for the COVID vaccines is going to depend upon what you find in people. But, you know, in contrast to the Ebola example, um, we don't have the weight of evidence yet to have make predictions about whether the vaccine approaches we're taking are going to be efficacious or not. I mean, I believe that it will be possible to make a COVID vaccine but we don't yet know enough about what a protective immune response would be and how the different vaccine candidates vary in their ability to induce that protective immune response. This is a case where we're definitely going to have to learn while we're doing. Right. Building the plane as you're flying it, as some folks in the field have put it a few times. You know, there are more than 100 vaccine programs underway for COVID-19. If we go by historical guides you know, six of them will be successful. Hopefully that number is low, uh, but these are new technologies. And so perhaps the historical uh, evidence isn't really applicable here. But if, you know, and there's already 10 or, or so in human trials. If you had to venture a guess, uh, do you, how many vaccines do you think will ultimately end up being successful here in the relatively near term, the next couple of years? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, I mean, I think it's great that so many people have stepped up and gotten involved in the vaccine effort for COVID. I mean, a lot of those um, efforts, I don't think have necessarily a meaningful prospect of becoming actual vaccines, and that's not in any way intended to be critical, but what's necessary to have an actual vaccine that can be deployed to help save people's lives, you know, protect them from, you know, COVID-19 disease and SARS-CoV-2 infection is you have to be able to not only have the scientific foundation to induce protective immunity, but you need to be able to manufacture that vaccine at a sufficient scale so that you can reach the, all the people who need it, which in this case is billions and billions of people. And you know, going back to your earlier question about timeline, when people make projections about timelines, it's very important to ask them to be specific about what do they mean. Do they mean that we'll have evidence of a vaccine being efficacious, namely effective at protecting people against this disease, or do they mean that the vaccine will be available at a global scale 
for everyone who needs it. And those are two very different timelines. And of the candidates that are being advanced, it takes so much time, effort, resources, and expertise to actually take a vaccine idea from the laboratory into the clinic and all the way on to licensure that um, I think only a subset of those multitudinous vaccines are actually going to enter clinical trials and only a smaller number of them will progress beyond phase one clinical trials going into phase two clinical trials and potential what we call proof of concept efficacy trials. So there's going to be a very significant filter, which isn't to say that it's not worth looking at those other vaccine candidates because I think we'll learn from them. And it's going to be the totality of what the field learns that's going to be especially important. So I'm pleased that there are so many people engaged, but the reality is it's, it's going to be a much smaller number that are able to be studied in um you know, significant large-scale safety and efficacy studies, and even a fewer, you know, number that are likely to be able to progress to licensure. You know, that being said, I think it's quite clear that, you know, we need, we will likely need more than one efficacious, um, you know, COVID vaccine, and I hope that it'll be possible to have multiple technologies be shown to be efficacious. We need to not only meet this enormous global need, but we also need to think about how we tailor the vaccines to meet specific populations who may differ in whether the vaccine works as well in them or is as well tolerated as it needs to be in them. That was my conversation with Dr. Mark Feinberg. He's the president and CEO of IAVI, the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative. He joined me May 27th, 2020. The Keynote is produced by the CNBC Events Team. For information on upcoming events and how you can participate, please visit cnbcevents.com. I'm Meg Terrell. Take care, and thanks for listening. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation.